In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, for the grace to make this time a prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Who can know God's counsel, or who can conceive what the Lord intends? For the deliberations of mortals are timid, and unsure are our plans. This is from the first reading of today's Mass, and it expresses the transcendence of God in himself, the inner life of God, the inner thoughts of God, are unreachable to human nature. The only way to know God in himself is if he reveals himself to us. Later on in the same reading, the same point is made. Scarce do we guess the things on earth, and what is within our grasp we find difficult. But when things are in heaven, who can search them out? Or who ever knew your counsel except you had given wisdom and sent your Holy Spirit from on high? And thus were the paths of those on earth made straight. The only way to know God and himself, Lord, to know what is proper to you in your divinity is if you show it to us. And that that revelation that we have access to is because of our faith, because we believe in what God has revealed, and also because of our prayer life, our mystical experience, our prayerful experience of God, and also in heaven, right? This is how we have access to God and himself, through faith, through prayer and holiness, and then in heaven. And this is a basic reality of our faith, that God has revealed himself. He's entered history to make himself known to us. This God who is totally inaccessible in himself has entered history in deeds and in words, as the church puts it. We don't just have the words of God. We also have the salvific actions of God in history. And those deeds and words of revelation are recorded in sacred scripture. They're handed down also in sacred tradition. And then they're received and taught and defended and protected by the church in her magisterium. Who can know God's counsel or who can conceive what the Lord intends? And there's a danger. There's a danger. There's a danger of receiving revelation too casually, as if it were anyone else telling us anything else or even something we kind of already know. Right? Someone might tell us, did you hear that so-and-so passed away? Yeah, I know I heard that. Or did you hear about the mayor and this or that appointment? Yeah, yeah, I saw that on TV. And some of the things are perhaps not known to us and a little bit surprising, but still they're just kind of facts. Did you know that tomatoes are really fruits? Hmm, yeah, I think I heard that. I'm not sure why. And we could do this with the truths of Revelation. And no matter how familiar they are to us, because they involve God, 
they're transcendent, they're mysterious. But we pull them down and we make them as if they were any other fact. Did you know that God is your father? Yeah, yeah, I know that prayer, the Our Father. Do you know that God died on the cross for you? Ah, of course, that's Good Friday. Do you know that God is present in the Blessed Sacrament? Lord, help us not to lose this sense of your awesomeness, this sense of your transcendence. Anything we know about God, even through faith, even with the experience of prayer, even in heaven, anything we know about God is radically different from anything we know about anything else. And this is one of the core truths that God, in your wisdom and in your mercy, one of the truths that our Lord reveals to us about himself is his eternal and permanent transcendence. He's an infinite being. He's infinitely transcendent. No matter how much he reveals himself, we'll never be able to say, yeah, I know that. Yeah, there's nothing new here. Yeah, that's not news. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways. So are my thoughts above your thoughts. Even with faith, even with some experience in prayer, even some mystical experience, even in heaven, God, you will remain mysterious and incomprehensible. We'll never totally wrap our minds around you. God will always be awe-inspiring, beyond our grasp, overwhelming, overwhelming in his being and his goodness. Bishop Barron likes to say, in a phrase that I like a lot, he likes to say that we try to domesticate God that we like to have God under our control and make him predictable and rational and controllable. And God is wild and God is mysterious and God is beyond our control. The letter to the Hebrews says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in another verse it says, for our God is a consuming fire. Lord, help me not to domesticate you, but to meet you through the faith, through my prayer life, through holiness, and then ultimately in heaven. Help me, Lord, to meet you in all of your wildness, in all of your irreducibility, in all of your infinite, overwhelming nature and power and goodness. This radical holiness, this radical mystery of God, his ineffability, his incomprehensibility, is often conveyed to us in sacred scripture precisely by comparing God with created things or with finite things, the things that we think are so important and so interesting and so powerful in this life. Compared to God, sacred scripture tells us they're like nothing. In every age, O Lord, you have been our refuge, we read in the responsorial psalm. You turn man back to dust, saying, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are as yesterday, now that it is past, or as a watch of the night. You make an end of them in their sleep. The next morning they are like the changing grass, which at dawn springs up anew, but by evening wilts and fades. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain wisdom of heart. And so the things that seem so stable, so permanent, 
and so powerful and so important in this life. Compared to God, they're like nothing. I mean, think about someone like President Joe Biden. I mean, President Joe Biden was uh, already a senator when I was just a little kid, right? (laughs) Decades ago. Or someone like former President Trump, right? Former President Trump was in the news as a real estate tycoon and celebrity in the 1980s, decades ago. And yet, compared to God, their lives and their impact and their influence are like nothing. That a thousand years in our Lord's sight is like the day that is already passed, not even a day that still has to be lived or is still coming, but it's like yesterday, it's like nothing. Lord, help us to recover this sense of your otherness, of your holiness, of the distinction between you and creatures. Compared to your eternity, the world is so impermanent. Compared to your perfection, the human world is so full of defects. Compared to your wisdom and your truth, Lord, we're confused and blundering. Our Lord himself, Jesus Christ, in today's gospel, makes this point, and he uses language that is kind of jarring, is kind of striking, precisely to you know, kind of shake us into the right relationship with God, precisely to kind of underscore how radically different God is and therefore how radically different our love for God has to be than our love for anything else. Great crowds were traveling with Jesus, we read in the Gospel of Luke. And he turned and addressed them. If anyone comes to me without hating his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. They're jarring words. If anyone comes to me without hating his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There's a parallel passage where our Lord says, unless we hate mother and father, brothers and sisters, and our own life, we're not worthy of him. You're not worthy of me unless you hate these other people and even yourself. And obviously we have to read this in the context of, the, of all of Revelation and Scripture. We'll do that in a second. But if you just read this at face value, perhaps your reaction would be, well, who the heck do you think you are? How can you demand of me that I hate my family, people closest to me, and if I don't, I'm not worthy of you or I can't, I can't follow you? Who the heck do you think you are? And that's precisely the question that, that our faith answers. Jesus is gone. And God is a radical good. And all the other loves in our life, no matter how important or how noble, have to be relegated to second place to the love of God or have to be transformed and submitted to the love of God. Otherwise, we don't get it and we don't get what God is and who God is and how he needs to be loved and how we're made to love him. Now, of course, we have to read this um, language of hating our parents and our 
and our brothers and sisters and our children even, we have to read it in the context of the New Testament. And Jesus tells us that we have to love others as he loved us. And Jesus tells us we have to even love our enemies. And the Bible tells us that we have to honor our mother and father. And so when Jesus says you have to hate your mother, for example, he's not really telling us that we have to have ill will towards our mother and plot against her and try to hurt her. No, because the same God says you have to be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. And the heavenly father lets his sun shine down upon the just and the unjust. And the heavenly father lets his rain pour down upon the just, upon the unjust. God loves everyone. And he says, you have to love everyone. Of course, it's going to include <laughs> your mother and those closest to you. And so when Jesus says, you know, unless you hate these things or these people and even your own life, you can't follow me. It's a graphic way of saying, look, your love for me has to be radical. And nothing should get in the way of it. And at times, if we idolize our own life or if we idolize our family relationships, well, then in order to correct that disordered love, it kind of seems like a certain kind of hatred, right? Loving them less or putting that love in the place it needs to be in. It's not real hatred, but it's a correction. It's a correction of our affection so that God is number one. And that it takes a certain violence against our nature, and it takes a certain um, redirection of our heart. But it has to be done. We're made for this. We're made to love God above all things. And therefore, the first commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Jesus goes on to um, try to explain this radicalness. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you wishing to construct a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if there is enough for its completion? Otherwise, after laying the foundation and finding himself unable to finish the work, the onlooker should laugh at him and say, This one began to build but did not have the resources to finish. Or what king, marching into battle, would not first sit down and decide, whether with 10,000 troops he can successfully oppose another king, advancing upon him with 20,000 troops. But if not, while he is still far off, he will send a delegation to ask for peace terms. In the same way, any one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. And so Jesus, you're telling us here that we have to like make a calculation do I want you to be God? Do I want to be your disciple? Do I want God to be God? And if I do, Jesus says, well, the price is everything. <laughs> the price is all of my love. The price is all that I have. The saints speak in this way about love of God. Their faith and their prayer life lead them to a realization of how good God is and how He's worth loving with all that they have, with everything, and worth all the sacrifices necessary to love him in that way. St. Josemir puts it so well, so briefly in the way, he says, how little a life is to give to God. 
how little a life is to give to God. And it's little in a way that, you know, in a way it's not little because it's all that I have. My life is me. It is my experience. But compared to God, who created it and who created all the lives that they are and who is infinite life in himself, the little that I am is so little to give to God. It's all I can do. It's all I should do. St. Lorenzo Ruiz was the first canonized Filipino saint. He was a martyr in Japan. And his last words before being executed were this. He said, I am a Catholic and wholeheartedly do accept death for God. Had I a thousand lives, all these to him shall I offer. If I had a thousand lives, I'd offer them all to God. That's how great God is. That's how wonderful God is. How little a life is to give to God. God deserves all the lives, all the glory, all that we can ever give him. An old evangelical hymn puts it this way. Since from his bounty I received such proofs of love divine, had I a thousand hearts to give, Lord, they should all be thine. If I had a thousand hearts, a thousand lives, I would give them all to God. So great is God, so deserving of all of our love, so radically transcendent and good, the source of our very selves. Lord, this is the truth, and we need to make acts of faith in this truth. How radically good God is, how deserving of all of our devotion. This is the reality that God is this good. God is this necessary. God is this primary. And perhaps when I reflect on that truth, the first thing that comes to my mind is an act of humility. Lord, I don't love you in this way. I don't love you in the way that you deserve. I don't love you in the way that that my soul needs to love you because of who you are. St. Philip Neri used to pray that aspiration, which I love so much. Lord, I don't love you. Lord, I don't love you. And then after humility, after first faith, that remind ourselves how important it is to love God like this and to put God in first place. And the humility of recognizing and admitting, Lord, I don't love you in this way. Well, then the third step could be some sort of reaction. Lord, help me to pray about you more. Help me to think about you more. Help me to love you more. I love you more with a deeper prayer life, with a more generous prayer life. Love you more, Lord, because I'm called to be in the middle of the world. Most of us listening, if not all of us, are not uh, cloistered religious, contemplative religious, but we're called to be contemplatives in the middle of the world, as St. Josemaria would put it. And so to love God with everything we have is to pray more, is to pray better, but it's also to do all those things that God wants us to do, but for love of God and with more charity and trying to do it in his presence and refer things to him more habitually, whether it's work or rest or eating or sleeping or exercising or socializing, whatever it is, all for love, all for the love of God, to love God in and through all those things. And Lord, perhaps also mortification. Mortification, not so much of bodily things, although that might help, 
but perhaps in our day and age, especially mortification of my imagination, of my consumption of entertainment and information, how distracted I let myself get by my phone or by my computer or by my streaming services. Because this world is so good at offering things for our minds to love, things for our minds to think about and our hearts to love and our emotions to get attached to and get involved in. And unless we are conscious of that and kind of willfully create detachment, times of silence, times where we go without using the gadgets or looking at the shows or the websites, well, we'll never fall in love with God. God will never be all for us. We'll never be able to say with St. Francis of Assisi, my God and my all. Our thirst for God will be kind of covered up or squandered by trying to slake that thirst with so many things that, that really don't satisfy. And we're grateful, you know, obviously, again, uh, it's not that we don't watch the shows or we don't get into the things that other people are into, but are we overattached? And is it keeping me from really praying and really loving God and really living the presence of God? Because if it is, it's a sign that we need to um, be a little bit more detached, a little bit more mortified to create that space, <laughs> create that space in our heart, in our soul, in our attention for the divine, right? And and if we don't have that, we'll never have this wonder of how good God is, how transcendent God is. I got an email uh, recently from the New York Times and the, and the subject of the email said, why not try pickleball? And I thought to myself, yeah, why not, right? And so <laughs> this is the world. It's always saying, hey, you know, get interested in pickleball or get interested in Bitcoin or get interested in this exercise equipment or get interested in, in these new genes, which aren't really denim. They just look like denim. Or whatever. It is a million things that the world is constantly putting before us to say, hey, put your mind and heart in this. Put your hopes in this. Enjoy this. And fine. That might be fine. Maybe I should um, check out pickleball, right? As the New York Times says, why not? Why not <laughs> try out pickleball? Um, but as a Christian, we have to say, well, well, where's my heart? Where's God? Our hearts are weak. And our hearts can be idolatrous and adulterous. And so this God who's so awesome, who you know deserves all of our love, such that loves between me and him, they should be treated as if they were hatreds. This God who deserves all of my love and a thousand lives, if I had a thousand lives to live him and a thousand hearts with which to love him, if I had more than this poor heart, right, who deserves all of that and who my soul wants to love like that. Well, he's forgotten and and he's neglected. And the affection that we should have for him, we give to frivolous things and sometimes sinful things. Because, Lord, my heart is idolatrous and my heart is adulterous. And so we have to constantly correct and be humble Think about God, make an act of faith, and pray a little bit more, 
and find ways of freeing our attention, freeing our heart, freeing our emotions to love God in Himself, first of all, in Himself, in our prayer, in our adoration, and then also in our charity, right, in our life as it is filled with all sorts of wonderful things that, that come from God. The only possible measure for the love of God is to love without measure. St. Maria. The only possible measure for the love of God is to love without measure. How little a life is to give to God. Lord, may I have due measure in everything except in love. May I have due measure in everything except in love. St. Augustine says that, Lord, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And whether we experience that or not, or realize it or not, that's true. That we'll never be fully satisfied, we'll never be fully ourselves at rest unless we attain God. Now with our faith, with our prayer, with our charity, with our holiness, and then in eternal life in heaven. Other saints put it a little bit more strongly that we're miserable. Our hearts are miserable and it's like living death until they rest in God, until we can go to heaven and be with God. This is St. John of the Cross. I no longer live within myself, and I cannot live without God. For having neither him nor myself, what will life be? It will be a thousand deaths, longing for my true life, and dying because I do not die. This life that I live is no life at all, and so I die continually until I live with you. Hear me, my God. I do not desire this life. I am dying because I do not die. And I'm dying because I'm not with God yet, because I don't see him yet. I don't have the object of my heart's desire. I die because I do not die. When I am away from you, what life can I have except to endure the bitterest death known? I pity myself, for I go on and on living, dying because I do not die. Lift me from this death, my God, and give me life. Do not hold me bound with those bonds so strong. See how I long to see you. My wretchedness is so complete that I die because I do not die. I will cry out for death and mourn my living while I am held here for my sins. Oh, my God. When will it be that I can truly say, now I live because I do not die? Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. In a certain sense, Lord, once we realize how good you are and how much we need you, our hearts are miserable until they rest in you, until they find their joy in you. We go to our Blessed Mother who knew how to do this, who knew how to contemplate God and love God above all things and live for God. And like us, she did this not just in her prayer, not just in church, so to speak, but through her ordinary life, doing things with Jesus, for Jesus, living intensely all things out of love for God. Our Lady, our Mother, Mother of Fair Love, pray for us. 
I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect, my Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my guardian angel, intercede for me.